This is Loudspeaker. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Menares, and you're listening to the We Podcast, where together we find inspiration, encouragement, and growth through stories and real talk. Here we navigate the messy human experience together. We raise our voices and speak our truth. In this space, we value the conversations that broaden our perspective and help us fully understand that we are connected, we are capable of growth, and that we are not alone. Are you ready? Let's get real. You're listening to episode number 104. Before we dive in, you should know that this episode has content that could be triggering for some listeners. We talk about suicide and thoughts of suicide, so please check in with yourself, and if this doesn't feel like a good fit for you, hop over and check out some of the other wonderful episodes. In this episode, I get to talk with Deborah Wilson-Porres. Deborah is a mental health therapist and program director of an adult intensive outpatient program. She provides trauma-informed therapy, including EMDR and trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy. She recently received her PhD in advanced studies in human behavior. Creating the non-judgmental space for individuals to heal is her jam. We talk about her journey, EMDR therapy, parenting a suicidal or struggling teenager, and healing from trauma, and many other mental health related topics. There is a ton of important information in this episode, and I can't wait for you to get that info. So here we go. Here is my interview with Deborah. I'm so excited to be able to have you here to talk with you. Deborah has a PhD in advanced studies in human behavior, which is just super interesting. And so I can't wait to dive in and pick your brain and also hear more about your story, which I know has really contributed to leading you up to where you are and what you're doing today. So I'm a Colorado native. I'm from Sterling, Colorado. I was born and raised there, went to school there, was homeschooled my high school years. My mother is from South Korea. So she immigrated here in the early 70s. And she had three kids before I was born. And my dad, he had a couple kids also in previous relationships. So I was the youngest out of all the bunch. My mom got remarried and he had four kids. So yeah, coming from you know, Sterling, our, our family has a, it's an interesting sort of background. On my dad's side of the family, they uh, manufacture amusement rides. So I come from a long line of carnies and people who have been involved in amusement ride manufacturing. And, and I think that was a highlight. And one of the magical pieces of my childhood was, was going with my, my dad's cousin's husband and test riding, you know, amusement rides. And so that was, that was a fabulous piece of my, my childhood. And there was also some really tough pieces too. My dad was mentally ill and had a lot of chronic health conditions. 
And I think that really weighed on my mom for many years. And so they finally divorced when they were, gosh, I was 15 years old. And I think my mom knew that was, you know, coming down the line. But I chose to live with my dad during that time. It, w- it became a very codependent relationship. And so he really depended on me. I really wanted to make him happy. You know, I did go to college and I started out at Northeastern Junior College my first year, but his health deteriorated, you know, as the years went by. And eventually I did go to Colorado Christian University. I transferred as a sophomore. But what I noticed during that time, I went through a really horrible breakup with my my first love, my high school sweetheart, and then started having really depressed thoughts, suicidal thoughts. It was a very dark period my first year of college. And I think I had struggled with that previously, but couldn't put a name to it or understand it or know what I was going through as a middle schooler, as a high schooler. So I think back then my saving grace also was like youth group and being connected to my church. So some of those people really helped me during that time. But eventually, like I was so pressed and pressured that I just told my dad like one night or I was just feeling overwhelmed and I was in Sterling and we lived in this little trailer and I said, I just feel like if I don't do something, I'm going to run my car off the street or off the road or off the highway. And so I drove myself to the emergency room, you know, looking for help. And it's no wonder they didn't hospitalize me because I was having suicidal thoughts. I didn't necessarily have a plan, but I, I, I think I was in danger. But eventually after that, I was put on Zoloft and antidepressants, you know, for a little bit. And I think I weaned myself off of those without doctor's orders. But during that time too, it was difficult because I had developed an addiction to muscle relaxers that my doctor prescribed when I was going through a lot of back pain in, in high school. And so looking back, I had no idea, you know, I was I was building a tolerance to these muscle relaxers and taking three to four at a time. And I just remember my sister just looking at me like, you know, those are going to stop your heart if you keep using those. And so eventually I think my doctor, thank God, caught on and just said, no, no more. You're not taking those. And eventually I just, I probably went through a withdrawal mode, but I got through it. I think that was one way that I was coping in high school and and early college was that addiction to muscle relaxers. So definitely had a lot of success. Like, you know, I always felt like I was a smart girl, but emotionally I was stupid. I had academic sense, you know, I could accomplish a lot of good things. And, you know, I studied at Oxford for a semester, you know, so I had a lot of things under my belt as an undergrad, but When it came to relationships, I was just immature. I don't know if it was because I was so sheltered when I was younger, but definitely I went through a stint of just trying to find people that would that would love me, feeling very unlovable as a young person. And so Mm. I think those things after especially, you know, my dad died after my senior year of college. I graduated in Lakewood at Colorado Christian University in two thousand three and then I moved back. I got pregnant with my son, Jack, who's 17. And and then my dad died October that year after I graduated from lung cancer. And so even though I loved him, there was a lot of freedom with him passing. I don't carry that guilt of saying that, but that was a heavy relationship for me. And I think it really provided the background and the foundation for all my other relationships in the future with men. So I went through a first marriage with my oldest son, you know, five years into that marriage, I decided to leave. I was young, I was cheating, I was 
acting out because I hadn't resolved a lot of the trauma that had happened. I was just pushing it away, even creating this busyness with even the academics. And, and, you know, I even wanted to go to divinity school and I love school of theology. So I had like this weird sort of academic piece of me, but I was just doing all these weird things <laughs> in relationships. And it, it, it really devastated just, you know, one marriage and then moving on to another marriage where it was abusive. And, and then, you know, that, that ended in a divorce with my daughter's dad. And so, golly, you know, I didn't address the things that I needed to. And I did eventually go to counseling. I went to a marriage and family therapist in Sterling and, and she was the one, I don't think I would have ever went the way of counseling because I, my self-esteem was so, so low. I was like, how can I help people? I am so effed up. Like, <laughs> there's no way, like, oh, who would want to work with this? You know, so, so she really urged me to go and, and she did do some EMDR with me, which was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think helped a lot. So eventually I, you know, I made the decision after my second divorce to pursue my master's in marriage and family therapy, which was kind of ironic because I had failed so many times I felt like in relationships and didn't feel like the expert, but I just felt it was a good course. And I wanted to learn more about family systems and maybe understand my family dynamic, you know, and how to maneuver through that and even help my mom and siblings through, you know, some stuff. And so I gained a lot of knowledge. And so, yeah, I completed that in 2014. And I was going through my second divorce when I had finished my master's. But it was it was a good time. It that signified a lot for me. A lot of things ended in terms of that immaturity. I just grew a lot during that time and was really getting into like the ideas of like law of attraction, kind of the secret Esther Hicks, there was a lot of stuff that I was diving into in terms of how to create my world and the and the power that I had in in you know, my thoughts, my emotions, my behaviors. So that was a big turning point, a very difficult time, but man, the pain moved me to a really good place. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, going through things and actually having those experiences, I think make people a better therapist in, in my opinion, because you really can have, I mean, you get it, you know, you get the the unhealthy dynamics that can happen, you get the the addiction, you get all of those things. I think that's what had brought value to my training was not only was I getting like the book end of it, but I was, you know, I wasn't going to be like this blank therapist <laughs> that did not understand, you know, I, you grow a lot of empathy through your pain, you know, what people might be feeling. And and so you really reach out in those moments because you don't want them to feel like that, or you want to help them through that feeling. I think it does create a lot of just that connection. You understand, you know, you understand and you know, the deepest, darkest places. Yeah. I could really relate to a lot of what you said personally. And I, I had a very codependent relationship with my mom. And so I'd love to just zone in a little bit on the codependency because I know it's it's kind of a buzzword or maybe people know the word, but don't really understand what that means exactly. And so yeah. you said feeling unlovable, really. And I know for me, 
I very much searched outside of myself for my own worth, my own value, what you know, whether or not I I was lovable did not come from within myself. It very much came from the people around me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what it was. It could have been the slightest sort of, you know, hurtful word, you know, and I was doing my bet, you know, that was coming from my dad. If he said something that hurt me, I was doing my best to just make him feel better or, you know, beg that I, I would change. And so I was in those moments, I think with codependency, you're giving other people the calculator on, on your worth, you know, you're, you're like, okay, Hey, here's a calculator. You decide what my worth is. And so that wasn't coming internally for me. That was an external sort of thing, looking for that outside approval, making sure other people are happy at my own expense, at my own expense with my mental health. And I think that is where I finally realized with therapy, with my training, where you draw the line that, okay, I do have worth it. There isn't anything that I can do that would reduce that worth, you know, it, it will increase it, you know, like it's inherent. And so just that realization really cut some of those codependent ties, especially in relationships with men where I, I felt like I couldn't live without him or I, it felt like relationship addiction, you know, with mental health issues and codependency, a lot of those things can still rear their head at times. And then you have that thought and old thought or old behavior and like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, I'm done with that. You know, that is not something and that's not the road I'm going anymore. So yeah, definitely wanting people's approval. And I think over time, like, you know, you want people to be happy, but not at your expense. And that's what codependency really meant for me. You just mentioned relationship addiction. Could you speak a little bit more to that? I think that really ties into the codependency piece. Relationship addiction to me is really when you're getting, it's kind of a lust sort of thing and you get all these great feelings and you love it, it, the novelty of new relationships, but never see through them or, you know, follow through or really build relationship skills. It's just, you're addicted to people, you know, being in love, loving being in love sort of thing. And so I think that did tie into my self-worth a little bit. It was just like, who, who's out there to love me? You know, like, and what do I have to do in order for you to love me? And I will do anything for you to love me, you right. know? And so yeah. I can't imagine how painful it was for my loved ones looking from the outside in, just like, wow, she's really trying hard here, staying in really unhealthy situations. I think that can translate to relationship addiction too, where there's, you know, there's nothing that you wouldn't do for that person. And you compromise your values, your beliefs, things maybe that you grew up with that were of worth, you know, I think that's how I see it. An important realization for sure. I, I remember being so moldable, like I was a chameleon, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I can change my likes. I can change my whatever it may be. What do you want me to do? It even got to the point where I, in my second marriage, I was so convinced on just making this person happy. And I would say the abuse was going both ways. You know, it was really unhealthy, I think, in a lot of aspects from each person. But 
I got to the point where he had left me and then I really wanted him back in my life. And I felt like that was like in the deepest depths of my relationship addiction. And his problem was cheating, you know? And so I was like, hey, if we did like an open relationship and you were able to do whatever you wanted to do and maybe me too, you know, would you come back and stay? Like I was providing any sort of environment or thing that would appeal to him to bring him back. And that's how desperate I was in suggesting that, you know, it wasn't even coming from him, but I was like, Hey, if you want that woman or this woman or do this, you know, I was, I was game for it because I so desperately wanted to be loved. So how do you feel like you really started to intervene in that and and kind of move forward differently? Was it, you mentioned school and learning and then also EMDR. So I had done EMDR, you know, previous to all that. But I think really my training and I really think starting out in the field of therapy really just changed the trajectory for me. You know, working with these skills with these that I my first job was with adolescents. And so in some ways, working with them, I was healing my own adolescent person. And so just even with the training, learning coping skills, ways to manage my emotions. And I think with age and maturity, it helped. But I was just determined in my mind that I wasn't going to lead a life like that any longer that, you know, enough is enough. You know, I'm approaching 40 years old. Mm -hmm. I need to get this figured out. And so I think it was through the training, having a really good support system. A lot of my friends were therapists, you know, asking for help, being vulnerable. And, and really, I think that vulnerability piece was huge because before I was just kind of like, I don't need any help. I'm not going to ask for help. I got this figured. And I think I just had a breaking point where I was like, you know what? I need some advice. What I'm doing is not working. (laughs) So I need to, I need to talk with somebody else. And so I just had really good professors and mentors along the way that I just looked at examples of people that I was like, you know what? They're, you know, I didn't know their full story of their life, but they're leading a pretty good life. What are they doing? You know, so just learning a lot of interpersonal skills, boundaries, understanding what those boundaries meant for me. So yeah, it's been a process. It's been, it's been a lot, a good process. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I knew what boundaries were until I went to grad school. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, what? Really? <laughs> I'm allowed to do that. Oh, (laughs) I can say no. Yeah. Not feel bad about it. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, Because I think for me in the codependent piece, guilt was a huge, huge, like a control factor, you know, feeling guilty about everything. And I love how you said earlier when you, you said that your dad passed and you felt a lot of freedom in that and that you don't feel guilty saying that. And I think that's huge to be able to release, you know, those feelings of shame or guilt. I could really relate to that statement because when my dad passed, I loved him and it was sad. And it was like this, almost like this space opened where I I just had this now freedom to do things that I couldn't do before or that I felt like I couldn't do before. Absolutely. The shame and the guilt. And I like how I, you know, talk with clients about it. It's like, 
the shoulds that come up in you, like I, I should be a better daughter or I should be a better mother. And I say, stop shooting on yourself, you know, and that does so much shame, so much guilt. And I really back then before I was like, I should be a better daughter, but I was doing everything that I could, you know, no one else was placing that guilt and blame on me, only myself. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're usually the ones, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Worst critic. Mm-hmm. At some point, though, that kind of gets indoctrinated into us, I think, though, the messages we're given, the situations we go through growing up. For Mm -hmm. sure. I think it was definitely a conditioning, you know, ever since I was born to hold some sort of guilt, you know, because it was modeled to me, you know, but at some point I was like, okay, breaking that generational curse. Yeah, that's powerful. So now you do with your clients, you do EMDR in your trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapist. So I refer a lot of clients to EMDR. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so I would love for us to tell our listeners a little bit about what it is exactly. So I, I movement desensitization reprocessing, such fancy words. For EMDR, but yeah, something developed by Frances Shapiro back in the 80s. What I understood is she she was walking in the park and she was thinking about some traumatic events, but she was moving her eyes from left to right kind of quickly. And then she had noticed that there was some relief after she had processed some of those thoughts and was moving her eyes back and forth. And so it it was, it sounded, when you read the story, it sounds so like hocus pocus sort of thing. Like, what is this? So EMDR, I was trained in it, I think it was like three or four years ago, a bunch of us clinicians at Northrange actually did EMDR, did our training on each other. And so it was, it was pretty, it was pretty powerful because all of us were ready you know, we all had things that we wanted to process, you know, things that had impacted us. And so that is the goal of EMDR is is working on things that still affect us emotionally, things that still bring up these bodily responses. You know, we think about post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, people that are hypervigilant, having intrusive thoughts, nightmares, you know, the whole the whole bag, depression, anxiety. So so yeah, I go through the phases and and I, I love it because how I see it is it's not one of those things where you just forget about the traumatic things that are happening, but it's kind of like it's a full screen, full TV screen in front of you. And then it eventually as you go through the reprocessing phase, it becomes like this little, little TV screen in the back. So EMDR definitely, you know, you're processing memories, things that, you know, that your brain brings up in those sessions. And so in the beginning, you're really skill building and working on resources that you can use uh, while you're starting these phases. And, and I think, yeah, working with a therapist to determine what are those things? Was it something that happened in childhood that has had an impact? Was it something two years ago? Maybe it was a week ago. You know, your brain picks what the thing was. You know, nobody can define that for you. And I think that's what I love about EMDR is that when you're in the reprocessing phase and 
I know some therapists use buzzers in the reprocessing phase or little light sticks. I use a pencil, my finger. (laughs) I'm pretty cheap, you know. We use those simple things in terms of, you know, the bilateral stimulation that goes with with EMDR. But, you know, what I when I tell clients and, and EMDR can be pretty scripted and I go by the script when I'm talking with them and I let them know whatever your brain goes to when we're reprocessing and we're doing the bilateral stimulation, that is what it is. There is no right or wrong. We want to bring you back to those troubling sort of thoughts and feelings and body sensations. We want to bring you back to those even if your mind does wander in the reprocessing phase. But I think what I also love about it is it it works on sort of that those negative cognitions that you have about yourself. Mm-hmm. Like I am, I'm not lovable, you know, I'm unworthy. Or, this world is never going to be safe. And so that installation phase of, man, I am worthy. And, and I, I can be safe in this world and I can make progress. So, so yeah, I think the installation of those positive cognition about yourself is like the most powerful piece of EMDR. And we do a lot of check-ins, a lot of visualization happens. One of the first visualizations that we do with slow bilateral stimulations in EMDR is called safe calm place. It kind of reminds me of like... <laughs> I don't know if you ever watched Fight Club, but there, I think there's a support group that they have and then everyone imagines like their safe place. And I think there was an image of like a penguin going down in an igloo or something like that. So maybe that could be your safe place. I know my safe place when I was doing EMDR and, and understanding uh, that visualization was my parents' backyard in the gazebo, you know, so it really works on like CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, on visualization. It, it's the whole gamut. So I absolutely love it. And I love working with clients. You're listening to a podcast on the Loudspeaker Network. To find other podcasts and unique programming, visit www.loudspeaker.fm. Loudspeaker, diverse voices, unique sound. Feminist Hot Dog is back with a new season packed with awesome interviews with icons, artists, innovators, authors, and lots of surprises. Whether you consider yourself a hardcore feminist or you're feeling feminist curious, tune in Wednesday nights at 8 Mountain and get all the information and inspiration you need to live your best feminist life. Listen Wednesdays on Loudspeaker and Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, love yourself and love your buns. Yeah, it's really like taking a file out of the brain and refiling it, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's a great way of looking at it. I have a lot of people say, oh my gosh, that sounds so scary to like sit in in the place of the things that are, you know, causing you distress. But I always tell people that you do a really good job preparing them to go to that place and to have the tools to sit in that place to be able to do that work. So it's just such a beautiful method of really diving in to that that deeper traumatic, you know, yes. 
work. Yeah, absolutely. I think people do. They're like, you know, a lot of people have not addressed their trauma, right? That's not something they want to talk about. Like this is not everyday conversation that you want to bring up. And so, yeah, doing that skill building, resourcing, finding what's in your toolbox to use, you know, in the beginning is very, very helpful before you start reprocessing any EMDR. So you're not thrown into it like, here you go, let's, let's dive into this trauma, you know. So I've had people, you know, we like to get through the phases, but I think like, I've had people that just had to stop, you know, or maybe a crisis had happened. So we had to just kind of stall it a little bit and figure out maybe some more coping skills or ways to to get through the situation and then restart it again. Yeah, it sounds like we both kind of know personally that if you don't deal with your trauma, it keeps coming up, right? It keep, keeps reappearing over and over. Yeah. Just in different okay. ways. <laughs> yeah, in different ways. Those life lessons, they they come back. It does not matter. The universe will serve it back up to you, maybe in a different way. But, you know, that's kind of our job here is to to learn what that lesson is. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit more to that? It kind of ties to some of my just thinking about the laws of the universe. You know, we always want to run and hide, right? There is like some sort of, you know, that's a defense mechanism for us to not approach the real issues. And so I know that the things that I did not resolve, you know, over time in terms of my codependency, you know, in one of my earlier relationships, that ugly head reared itself later on in relationships until I understood what was going on with me in that codependency phase So once I was able to work, maybe not perfectly, you know, a lot of those things resolved, you know, so, and I think that's where I'm coming from in terms of the, the, the laws of the universe. Yeah. Those, those lessons show up in different ways until you understand it's kind of just like this. Yeah. Like, hello, have, have you, have you thought about this yet? Well, here it is again. I don't want to say it's like karma but it almost feels like it, it's making its its rounds until it's it's resolved or dealt with or processed. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's such a human thing to avoid. Yeah. Right? Avoid, numb, act like it's not there, find whatever way, you know, we can to not deal with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the reality is it, it will keep you know, saying, okay, are you, are you ready yet? Here I am again. Are you ready? Are you ready to pay attention? Right. Mm-hmm. That's a great way of, yeah. Are you ready to pay attention? And sometimes the pain drives you there. Like this is too painful. I need to pay attention <laughs> at this point. So yeah, I think it, it also, it, it really depends on people's readiness to change because not everyone's there, you know, and even like with EMDR, not everyone is ready to address trauma. But, you know, we we create a space in therapy for people to just kind of sit there and and process it before really diving in. So let's go back quickly to what you talked about with your own mental health journey when you were a teenager, young adult, and and feeling suicidal. And yes, yeah. um, I don't know that we have a ton of teenagers listening, maybe 
If so, hello. <laughs> yeah, hello, <laughs> <Maybe>. teenagers. Listen, <laughs> yeah. listen here. I, I wish I would have listened to stuff like this when I was a teenager. Oh, but. for real. <laughs> yeah. But maybe more parents listening, but that's a really, it's a really serious thing. It's a really difficult thing. And so what would you say to, and maybe it's both people, right? Who who are listening about, you know, reaching out, getting help, kind of that, that just what are your feelings around that? Well, I know when you're deep in the in the hollows depression, it's really hard to take that step to ask for help. Because usually at that point, if you're suicidal and you're self harming, you feel like there is like no hope, right? You're in a place where it's like, who would really care? And I I think I just came to the realization that people do care, people want to create a space where it's non judgmental, and, and it's supportive and those people exist. And that's crazy. And I never knew that as a teenager. I never got therapy as a teenager. And I really wish I would have because maybe I would have understood what was going on with me. And I think that is part of the part of the journey with, you know, teenagers and, you know, middle school, high school, like young adults is really understanding what what's going on with their emotions, you know, and I like to use a lot of DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, with just taking a non-judgmental stance with your emotions. Don't judge it as good or bad, but it is what it is, right? And let it let it move out, right? Don't try to, like we talked about, don't try to avoid it, but um, acknowledge it. And, and then maybe do some investigation as to maybe why you're feeling like that. You know, is it a thought process you're going through? Is it a what I call stinking thinking, cognitive distortion from cognitive behavior therapy. But I think, yeah, all those modalities really help, you know, somebody that's struggling, especially teenagers trying to understand their identity, you know, that, that cognitive, I, I used to run a cognitive behavior therapy group for teenagers and it was powerful because we got to really talk about how your thoughts and your feelings and your behaviors really connect, right? So I just want to give a lot of hope to, to, to parents, to teenagers, that there are people that want to listen to you, that there is support. And I know it's tough to take that first step and be vulnerable, but it's, it's there for you. So it's, yeah, I think the big piece of it too, when you're a parent with the suicidal teen or one that's self-harming, I've heard, you know, some parents wanting to punish kids after they've been hospitalized after psychiatric hospitalization like hey i'm taking you your phone away you're not seeing these friends and so that can be really tough and i think if we really approach that as parents is you know we're not we're not punishing you we want to show you a lot of grace so this is how we want to support your mental health you know if that means some of those things that's okay It's, it's just for the time being but so much goes wrong, I think, with teenagers speaking, you know, as a parent, just with tone, um, body language, and really, you know, using I statements, really, you know, taking responsibility for your own emotions as, as parents, and not giving yourself that guilt and shame as a parent that might have a kiddo 
that is struggling, you know, with suicidal thoughts, because sometimes that's just, <sighs> unfortunately, that kid's journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could have done everything that you could have as a parent, and and that's still their what they're going through, you know. So it's just our job to be supportive and and provide ways for them to get services. And you know, it could be really small adjustments parents can make you know, to make their kids' lives a lot easier. Yeah, not taking it as a reflection of themselves, I think is so huge. Because we can, we can, as parents, I think it's easy to get into, my child is a reflection of me, when that's essentially codependency. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, having teenagers now have a one that's going to be 12 and then a 17-year-old. And I, you know, like I said, some of that codependency that that ugly head will rear itself and, and like, oh gosh, they're struggling because I'm doing something. You know, there's a personalization of that. And and that's just there could be something completely outside of that, you know, and so of yourself. And so it's kinda like, okay, you know, I, I see that you're struggling. How can I help? You know? Yep. I'm right there with you. I got my my twenty year old. It's it's hard too. It's hard to let them go and Grow their wings. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. I have one that's going to be graduating next year. And, you know, he has all these plans or, you know, his way of thinking. And I'm just like, oh, are, you, are you sure? Okay. All right. This is your life. You're almost of legal age. Hmm. Go for it. You yeah. Know, but do it safely. Right. Your, your journey, supporting them on their journey. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very good. I think a lot of that advice is good for us older people, too. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, Glennon Doyle's recent book, you know, I think that was part of my deal, too, was realizing her realization of, you know, I, I am a good daughter when I'm a disobedient daughter. When I am really saying, Hey, I, I'm not looking for approval from my parents. You know, I'm, I'm doing my thing. And it, it was interesting to read her journey, you know, with that and, and how it was kind of like, Hey, I'm becoming who I am by doing what I want to do, what I feel like is right for my family and, and severing in a very loving, giving grace sort of way, but kind of saying, that's your deal. I'm doing my thing over here. I may be your daughter, but I'm not, I'm not doing everything that you tell me to do, (laughs) you know, being able to have boundaries with our parents and that, that, that's a good thing. I love, love, love that book. She's amazing. I just love her. One of my favorite quotes from that book is when she says, my children don't need me to save them. They need to watch me save myself. I mean, we don't understand the power of modeling of our kids watching us fight for ourselves, having boundaries, using our voice so much more powerful than anything we could tell them to do for themselves. Yeah, that's funny. That came up. I had posted it last year. I had bought the book after the pandemic started. And so that was my reading material for when I was in quarantine. And that I had posted that quote on there was that one that's on your wall there and it is it is powerful and i think yeah my my kids have seen all sorts of you know mom saving hers you know 
reaching out, asking for help, you know, that I don't exclude that. A lot of people helped me along the way. That was an act of saving myself with asking for help. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. And that you can be vulnerable and you can, you can admit when that there's this thing I, I feel like with moms where it's almost like, and I know I've, I've been there. Like I, I need to present as a robot. I need to present like I have it all together. I don't have any emotions. I'm happy all the time, which uh-huh. is complete BS, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, it really is. It is not a perfect journey, but I think it's, it's, it's a lovely one. And, and being a real human being, can be really fabulous, you know, that authentic sort of genuine thing. And that's, that was, that's been my journey is, you know, I, I can show my real self and, and if people don't accept me, that's okay. You know, I love me. (laughs) It's beautiful. Well, let me ask you my questions that I ask all of my guests. And the first question is, what do you feel has been the most vital to your growth? The most vital to my growth has really been giving myself grace, like really implementing that in my self-talk to myself, because I was a very rigid, sort of highly disciplined, black and white sort of person back in the day. Yeah, I left that out of my story there. But I really had to learn how to give myself grace to really say that it's not going to be perfect. I I was a chronic perfectionist and, you know, I think what helped was having kids because nothing's perfect when you have kids, it's, you know, and so even in that process, I'm not a perfect mother. Okay. That's okay. Showing myself grace. Mm-hmm. Walking away from this podcast, what do you want to make sure that people know? It, it is really easy to look really functional as a depressed person, as an anxious person, as a suicidal person. You can look like you have it all together and people will never know, but you're doing a huge disservice to yourself by, by really putting up those walls. And like I said before, there is so much help out there. People that really want to listen to you, that will give you an hour of their day, a really good therapist that will listen to your story and really validate, validate who you are and what you're doing. And so you can run, but you can't hide that that stuff catches up to you, but there's people to support you. So anybody who's listening that that maybe resonates with, what would you say are next steps or things that you would recommend for them kind of taking those next steps? Yeah, I think sometimes it can manifest in a lot of different ways, whether that's talking with a friend and, and then maybe you know, being vulnerable with a friend and saying, this is what, you know, I just, I actually just watched or listened to a story of somebody that just came out about years of being in an abusive relationship and looked very functional and was doing fine. And and so that was an inspiration to really think about like reaching out to people can provide one of the best feelings ever. And that is the feeling of relief. So taking that step to just talk to a trusted person. Maybe it isn't a therapist right away, but maybe you talk to a friend and both of you can search a good therapist, you know, that will help you maybe with trauma work, you know, relationship sort of issues. Um, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely vital 
letting yeah. other people in on your journey. I, I think when we get to a place of, I can do this by myself, that breeds the, the darkness, right? It breeds the, the downward spiral. Really? Yeah. We need each yeah. other. We, we, we need- do. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, if, if nothing has told us that more is 2020, you know, just that desperation of human contact, whether it be emotionally, physically, we, we do need, we're social creatures. We need each other and, and really re- reiterating how difficult it is when you are in a dark, dark spot. But even if it's texting a crisis line, call it a crisis line has a text, you know, that you can contact somebody. There's a lot of things, modalities that allow people to reach out and ask for help. There's also a national crisis line as well. I know that if you talk, if you text uh, talk to 38255, there will be a crisis counselor from the Colorado Crisis Services that will reach out to you. So sometimes it's, that's the initial sort of thing, you know, they can get you into services. Mm-hmm. The National Crisis Line is 1-800-273-TALK. So 1-800-273-8255. And I think that one will connect you with mental health in your area. Another website I really like that I refer people to a lot is psychologytoday.com to find yeah. a therapist. Is really yeah. good. You can, you know, read their profile. You can see their picture, get to know people a little bit better rather than, you know, just a list of names or. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is helpful because a lot of them have profiles and what they specialize in and how to contact them. So mm-hmm. yeah, psychology today is a good resource. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this. And how can people connect with you? People connecting with me, I don't have a website. I work for community mental health, but if anybody, you know, if people are needing support in drug addictions, trauma work, you know, residential rehab, definitely calling me at 970-347-1323. And definitely we can chat and figure out how we can best serve you. North Range Behavioral Health. I am the program director for the adult intensive outpatient program. So we do a lot of groups, a lot of individual therapy, a lot of support. I love it. Yes, the support is out there. And and again, I think what you said, so important that there are people who want to surround you and lift you up and listen to you and hear you and, and love on you and yeah. help you remember how important you are. So absolutely. Yes, they're out there. Find them. Thank you for listening to the We Podcast. What an insightful conversation with Deborah. I hope this helped you and gave you some inspiration and new insights into yourself and to those you love. There's a link in the show notes to psychologytoday.com if you're needing to get connected with a therapist. As always, I'd love to hear about your thoughts, takeaways, or favorite moments from this episode. Post the episode on your social media with your biggest ahas and make sure to tag me so that I can see and interact. This show is produced by Loudspeaker Networks. Also, credit to my talented daughter for creating my show music. 
You can find more of the We Podcast as well as many other awesome things on the network at loudspeaker.fm. If you heard something that touched you, don't forget to share with your friends. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth, show up for the hard conversations, choose growth, and always know that you are not on this journey alone. See you next time. This has been a production of Loudspeaker Networks. For more on this and other programs, visit loudspeaker.fm.